Thank you. Thank you for giving us so many reasons to worship you. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to demonstrate your love by dying on the cross to take away our sin forever. I pray that this morning we would be gripped by your love once again. And Lord, that we would not only receive your love, but we would learn from your love to be more loving like you. Fill us, Jesus, with the compassion that you have. Help us become better reflections of you on earth. Holy Spirit, enable us to put you and to put others first. Use this sermon, use the singing, use the, uh, the scriptures. Lord, use it all to make us more into your image, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I know it's not Christmas, so don't laugh at me for this, but I want to begin this morning by reading a few words from a summary of Charles Dickens' short novel, A Christmas Carol. How many of you have read or seen the movie or maybe uh, seen a TV show or something based on it? On a frigid, foggy Christmas Eve in London, a shrewd, mean-spirited cheapskate named Ebenezer Scrooge works meticulously in his counting house. Inside the office, Scrooge watches over his clerk, a poor, diminutive man named Bob Cratchit. The smoldering ashes in the fireplace provide little heat even for Bob's tiny room. Despite the harsh weather, Scrooge refuses to pay for another lump of coal to warm the office. A pair of portly gentlemen enters the office to ask Scrooge for a charitable donation to help the poor. Scrooge angrily replies that prisoners and workhouses are the only charities he's willing to support, and the gentlemen leave empty-handed. Scrooge confronts Bob Cratchit, complaining about Bob's wish to take a day off for the holiday. What good is Christmas? Scrooge snipes that it should shut down business. He begrudgingly agrees to give Bob a day off, but insists that he arrive at the office all the earlier the next day. Even this brief reading of this summary should make our insides jump with the thought, why is Scrooge so cold and callous towards needy people? Why doesn't he do anything to help? How can he be so cold? Charles Dickens wrote his novel because he was appalled by the terrible conditions that people were forced to work in and live under, especially children, in the mid-19th century England. Though it's not really a Christ-centered story, it, it makes a powerful point about how we should not have callous hearts towards the needy. I bring up this story from Dickens because it should help us start thinking about the calling we have as Christians to care for the poor and the needy. Jesus is the original storyteller who used stories like this to teach his people to care for the needy. And there are needy people both inside the church 
and outside. How do we respond to them? What is our reaction towards those who are hurting financially? Maybe on feeling desperation with, when it comes to possessions and basic needs. Do, do, do we do something to help? This morning we're going to continue this series I began last month on the parables of Jesus. And we're going to look at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We'll begin by recognizing that there is a real temptation to ignore the needy. It is so easy for us to become callous towards the poor when we have so much and we're tempted to focus in on our comfort and our luxuries. I know what happens to me. And then we'll go on to talk about why it's so important that we don't give in to this temptation of neglecting the poor. We'll see the reason why we need to care and have compassion for them. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 16. And it's really important, especially in these parables, to see the context that, come, that comes right before the parable. It really tips us off on how to interpret and understand the parables of Jesus. Luke chapter 16. It's important that you turn there because the context isn't up on the screen. Luke chapter 16. And uh, I'll tell you where to look in a minute. In fact, there is an earlier parable in, in the first part of this chapter. And at the conclusion of that earlier parable, which is the parable of the dishonest manager, Jesus calls his disciples to use their money appropriately, which includes caring for the needy as, as one of the applications of that. He calls us to be good stewards of the money that God has provided for us. In chapter 16, verses 10 and 11, he says this, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? In verse 13, he goes on to say, No servant can serve two masters. We know this one, right? For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What a challenge. In verse 14, the Pharisees respond to this, not by feeling like broken over the challenge of Jesus. Instead, they ridicule Jesus. And as Luke tells us, it's because they were lovers of money. In verses 16 and 17, Jesus declares that God's ways are not changing. In the Old Testament, God had called his people to care for the poor. Now that the kingdom of God is coming in Christ Jesus, nothing has changed. In fact, it is a major value of the coming kingdom of God to care for the poor. With all this in the back of our minds, then we jump into the parable of a very rich man and a very poor man depicted side by side, contrasted with each other. Please follow along as I read chapter 16, verses 19 through 21. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. 
And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Let's stop there. As we enjoy God's earthly blessings, it is a real temptation, a real danger that we'll get so engulfed in our comforts that we neglect the needy. This rich man had fallen to that temptation. He had so much, yet he does not seem to do anything for Lazarus. Just consider how rich he was. He was clothed in purple and fine linen. Purple clothing was extremely expensive and it represented royalty. Fine linen probably referred to the most expensive underwear that was out there. One commentator says, some people have nothing while others can afford expensive underwear. He feasted every day extravagantly. Sometimes I look forward to the big meals that we get to have at weddings with all of the delicious Middle Eastern appetizers, hummus, the bud eggs, the tabouleh, and of course the main dish of the kebabs. I look forward to special, more elaborate birthday meals where we get to go out, or even the treat of a sushi dinner once in a while. This rich man did not look forward to these kinds of feasts. He had them every day. He could always afford to eat this way. I wonder what his scale said about it. We hear about how Lazarus was laid at the gate, hinting to us that he lived on a large estate. Since this word for gate was usually used for the entrances of cities and temples and palaces, this man was extremely well off. On the opposite extreme, consider the desperate poverty of Lazarus. The fact that he was laid at the rich man's gate implies that he was likely disabled and could not walk. Or maybe he was too sick or too hungry to get around much. He was covered in sores, probably some sort of ulcers on his skin. The very opposite of being covered in purple clothing and fine linen. Not only could he not feast every day like the rich man, but he did not even have the smallest amount of food to eat, and so he was longing to be fed by the food that fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would not leave him alone, it says. And for us Americans, uh, we have to understand that dogs were not considered man's best friend. They were not considered friendly, warm, cuddly pets. They were thought of as dangerous and disgusting scavengers. They would come and lick Lazarus, probably causing more pain for his sores and maybe even more infections. And since dogs were not considered clean animals, Lazarus also became ritually unclean when he came into contact with them, which meant that he would not be able to worship at the temple with the rest of God's people and And that would also kind of break fellowship with other people who were clean, ritually clean. He must have been a pretty lonely beggar. He lived in extreme poverty and distress. 
the Jews that originally heard this parable might have assumed that the rich man was the good guy. They would have thought that maybe he was the one blessed by God because he was rich after all. And they would have assumed that Lazarus was the bad guy under God's curse. And such thinking, this is because such thinking was part of their cultural background. Even with today's false teaching, the health and wealth, prosperity, gospel teaching, some people might, if they stop here in this parable, might mistakenly think that the rich man was the blessed one. That the rich man was the one walking with God. And that Lazarus was the bad guy. But there are lots of things that help us understand this is not the case. First, Lazarus' name means God helps. And that implies that he was depending on God and walking with God. He's, He's the good guy. Second, the stark contrast in their condition implies that the rich man was not doing anything to help Lazarus. Otherwise, his condition would not be so bad, right? Verse 21 says, Lazarus desired or longed to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table, but it sure sounds like this desire went unfulfilled. Even if he did get some crumbs some once in a while, he'd be getting some leftovers that were already going to be thrown out, not something that the rich man generously thought of to give to him. The rich man was the bad guy. Third, as we just saw in the context right before the parable about using wealth in a way that honors God, it's already tipped us off that the topic here is the use of proper, the proper use, excuse me, of wealth. And clearly the rich man is not living up to this calling. He's not helping Lazarus. Fourth, in the larger biblical context, we have men like Job who suffered greatly, but not because of some specific sin they had committed. So it's very possible for rich people to be far from God and the poor to be very close to God. And fifth, spoiler, spoiler alert, we're about to see that when these two men die, Lazarus goes to heaven and the rich man goes to hell. The rich man is the bad guy in this parable. He's so consumed by enjoying his wealth that he becomes totally self-centered and callous toward anyone in need. As we consider the extreme wealth of the rich man and the extreme poverty of Lazarus, we should be horrified. We should start evaluating our hearts and our lives with the question, are there parts of me that are like the rich man who neglects the poor? As we enjoy God's numerous blessings, and there are many, there is a real temptation for us to ignore the needy. We too can be so caught up in pursuing comfort and convenience that we fail to take notice of the needy at our door. I know this happens to me. The reality is that there are millions of hungry people around the world and many of them are dying because of malnutrition. We need to care about this But even more, I think we need to care about the people at our doorstep. They are the closest. And so we are most responsible. We we know best about them. They're right in front of us. And just like Lazarus, who's at the gate of this rich man, 
we have those who are needy at our gates. To personally witness needy people and to not be moved in our hearts points to callousness that needs to be melted away by the love of God that we've experienced in the gospel. As the parable continues, Jesus gives us two very strong reasons why we need to care for the poor. Two reasons why we must have compassion for the needy. First, we must care for the needy because, as we're, as we're going to see, there, there's judgment coming. There's judgment coming for those who don't have Christ and who neglect the poor. We must not neglect the poor because God will one day judge those who have lived only for themselves. Look at it with me starting at verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Here we find that we must care for the poor and the needy because there is judgment coming for those who don't have Christ and who neglect the poor. The rich man and Lazarus both die, we, we, we just saw, and their conditions are totally reversed. To the total surprise of the original Jewish audience, Lazarus is the one in heaven and the rich man is the one in hell. Lazarus is carried by angels. Sounds like a pretty sweet escort to Abraham's side. Abraham's side symbolizes a place of honor and blessing and sweet fellowship. All that he had been missing on earth. It represents heaven. And the rich man dies and goes to Hades where he's in torment. And Hades usually refers to the place of the dead and in this case symbolizes hell where God's judgment takes place. The rich man asks Abraham for mercy requesting that Lazarus might come and bring to him a drop of water to cool his tongue because he's in anguish in the flames. But he is denied this relief. Notice the total reversal. Earlier, Lazarus could not get a crumb of food. Now the rich man cannot get a drop of water. The fact that the rich man knows Lazarus' name and asks specifically for Lazarus to come and help him shows even more that he had known Lazarus but had chosen not to help. His problem was not ignorance. And while the type of story this is, a parable or an example story, cautions us about taking everything literally, we can still be certain about 
the realities that these symbolic elements point to. Perhaps God's future judgment won't literally involve fire. That's possible. But the reality is that there is judgment coming and that it will be severe and conscious. If this were not the case, the whole point of the parable would be lost. In verses 25 and 26, Abraham goes on to explain the reason for why the rich man is denied relief. First, by pointing out the reversal of the rich man's condition and the poor man's circumstances, he implies that it's because the rich man did not help the poor man during his lifetime. Commentator Daryl Bach restates Abraham's words to the rich man in this way. What Lazarus lacked, you now lack. What you did not provide him then, he cannot provide for you now. You are reaping what you sowed. He goes on to say, the rich man is not condemned because he's rich, but because he slipped into the coma of callousness that wealth often produces. It is the rich man's negligence of the poor that leads to his suffering. And second, the rich man is denied relief because a great chasm has been fixed between the rich man in hell and the poor man in heaven. And this, this chasm, does not allow for Lazarus to come and bring relief or help. Obviously, it's God who has put this chasm to block such relief so that the unjust will get what they deserve. This shows how much God cares for the poor and the lengths that he will go to humble the proud who neglect the poor. The chasm represents the fact that there is no possibility of escape from judgment and no possibility of relief after one dies in their sin and apart from Christ. It is implied that judgment for sin is eternal and conscious torment, which is confirmed by other parts of Scripture. So the rich man is denied relief because of his callous negligence of the poor man at his very doorstep. The principle here is that those who neglect the needy around them will be judged. How do we process this as believers in Jesus Christ? Is this teaching justification by becoming poor, salvation by becoming needy? Or maybe justification by doing good works to care for the poor? Of course not. As the rest of the scriptures teach, we can only be saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. But this reality does not diminish the seriousness of the call to care for the poor. Let me explain. It all starts with the heart of God. Clearly, this parable tells us that God cares deeply for the poor and to to alleviate their suffering. As God's creatures, we, of course, are called to have the same heart that God has. We should care deeply for the poor. Yet in our sinful state, we think of ourselves first, don't we? Apart from the Spirit's work, we live for ourselves, kind of like the rich man in the parable. Think about it. Can you confidently say you've always helped the needy around you in every way you could have? 
We are all in danger of facing judgment like the rich man because of our selfishness, self-centeredness. We desperately need Jesus to save us from hell. By placing our faith in Jesus, His good deeds for the poor count on our behalf as if we ourselves had done them. And His death on the cross takes the place of the hell that we deserve to pay. Thanks be to God that in Christ we can be forgiven of our selfish neglect of the needy. And once we have placed our faith in Jesus and been adopted as God's children, we now need to adopt the heart of our Father as well. Our failure to care for others, we can now begin to overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. Our cold hearts, our inward hearts can be turned outward, can be melted by the love of God that we've experienced in Christ Jesus. Our faith in Jesus, who is the perfectly loving and compassionate one, should produce love in our hearts for others. So love and compassion for the poor is a mark of genuine faith in Jesus. The two are connected. True faith in Jesus will produce genuine love and compassion. In the context of this parable, the Pharisees did not have this mark of genuine faith. They claimed to follow God's law, but they loved money. And they scoffed at Jesus when he commanded them to use their money to care for the poor. They also rejected God's law in an even greater way by rejecting Jesus, the one whom the law had always pointed to. Maybe they depended on their physical connection to the lineage of Abraham. After all, they, uh, excuse me, as if being related to Abraham could, could get them relief. The rich man cried out, Father Abraham. That's what, it was, that's what he was thinking. I'm a descendant of Abraham after all. Maybe they felt they were under God's blessing because of all the money they had. Whatever it is they relied upon, Jesus was pushing them to recognize that they had failed in what really mattered to God, trusting in Jesus the Messiah and adopting his love for the poor. We must ask ourselves, what am I depending on to make me right with God? Is it the Christian family and tradition that I grew up in? Or do we think that our hard work or success or our careers or our riches somehow are indicative of spiritual success. According to this parable, our earthly successes will not go with us to heaven. In the eternal picture, our earthly success fades into the background and what matters is trusting in Jesus and following His ways. As the parable forcefully makes the point under the threat of God's judgment even, the stakes are high. Whether we've already trusted in Jesus or not, we need to all respond in two ways. First, I'm a sinner who has failed to love others as I should. Jesus, please forgive me and save me. And he will certainly save us. And then, second, Lord Jesus, my Savior, please give me love for the poor so that I can serve them like you do.
So far we've seen that as we enjoy God's earthly blessings, there is a real temptation to neglect the needy. We've now also seen the first reason that Jesus gives us as to why we must care for the needy because there is judgment coming for those who don't have Christ and neglect the poor. In the final part of the parable, we find a second reason why it's so important to care for the poor and to take God seriously when he calls us to it. It's because we cannot claim ignorance of God's will. We can't say we didn't know or there wasn't enough proof or evidence. God's call to to care for the needy and, and ultimately to believe in Jesus first is clear and sufficient in his word. Let's read verses 27 through 31. And he said, the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. That is, he wants Abraham to send Lazarus to his, back to life to his father's house. For I have five brothers, he says in verse 28, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Since God's call to care for the needy is clear and sufficient in his word, we cannot claim ignorance. The rich man asks Lazarus to to be sent to his brothers to warn them to repent before they go to hell and join him there, but But he's denied because the writings of Moses and the prophets in the Old Testament are sufficiently clear on the issue. They don't need someone else to go tell them what they should already know from what God has already revealed. I'll give you an example. In Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 and 8, Moses writes, If if among you one of your brothers should become poor, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. He goes on to say in verse 11, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. That's in Deuteronomy along with many other passages in the Old Testament, it's clear that God's will for His people is that they care for the poor. When Jesus shows up on the scene in the New Testament and begins ushering in the kingdom of God, this call for the poor is not diminished, but it's highlighted even more, even as we see in this parable. That's how John the Baptist preached to them to prepare for the coming of the Messiah, by repenting, and part of that was caring for the poor. The issue then is not a matter of not knowing, but rather it's a matter of not being willing. But the rich man pushes back and says, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. And once again, Abraham rejects his request. He says if someone's not willing to listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to listen to another messenger, even if this messenger comes back from the dead. It's not that there was a lack of miraculous evidence. 
confirming the Old Testament words that come from God. That were, you just think about all the miracles in the Old Testament that we read about. The rest of the scriptures teach that the problem is people's hearts and their willingness. They need, we need the Holy Spirit to work in us, to make us willing to, to trust in and obey God's Word. Of course, there's an even larger application to this. As we've already begun to see, this parable is not just about believing God's Word regarding the poor. It's ultimately about believing in Jesus who is God standing in front of them, giving them His Word. It's not that the evidence, again, just like the evidence in the Old Testament, it's not like the evidence for Jesus being the Messiah is lacking. It's that people don't want to believe. Jesus delivered God's message to the Jewish people along with many miracles to confirm His authority. Yet they rejected Him. For instance, in Luke chapter 11, even when Jesus cast out a demon that made a man unable to speak, they did not believe in him. Remember what they did? They attributed his work to the power of demons, Beelzebub. Others saw this, and they asked for even more miraculous signs, as if that wasn't enough confirmation. At this point, Jesus denies them any more signs because it was obvious that the miracles they witnessed with their own eyes were not enough to convince them. They needed a heart change. They needed the Holy Spirit to work in their hearts so they would be open to listening to God. At the end of his ministry, Jesus was crucified by the Jewish people. But as we find at the end of the Gospel of Luke, he rose again from the dead. And once again, we find that the Jewish people reject the risen Messiah. They even did have a dead man come back to them, and they still rejected him. The issue has to do with a heart that's willing to believe. The evidence is, is clear in God's word. It's compelling. It's not that God hasn't provided proof. It's that human beings in their natural sinful state don't want to believe. Often we hear critics of Christianity say that Christians, they're weak and they, they just, they believe in God because they want to believe. They need someone to depend on and, and that's why they don't have, and, and, and that's why they, they believe in Him. What we find in this parable and all the rest of Scripture is the very opposite, is that unbelievers don't want to believe and that's why they don't have faith. There's a bias there against God. But people have no excuse. Whether it's God's call to believe in Jesus or His call to care for the poor, the evidence is clear. Beloved, we must, we must trust in Jesus the Messiah. We must receive Him. And we must receive His heart and adopt His heart to care for the needy just like He does because His call is so clear in His Word and so sufficiently verified. We don't need more evidence to be confident of our faith in Jesus. While Lazarus' brothers were denied the miraculous sign of resurrection from the dead, we have this. Jesus Christ 
crucified and raised on the third day. And the eyewitness accounts of this recorded for our benefit in the New Testament. The Scriptures are clear and sufficient. And whether you're just getting to know Jesus or you've believed in Him for years and just feel the need for more confidence in Him, you need not look any further than the Scriptures, the Bible, the very Word of God. This morning we've seen that as we enjoy God's earthly blessings, there is a real temptation to get distracted, to get sucked in to our riches and to neglect the needy. We've also seen two powerful reasons why we must not give in to this temptation, but instead help the needy. First, because there's judgment coming for those who don't have Christ and who neglect the poor. Second, because we cannot claim ignorance of God's will. His call to care for the needy is clear and sufficient in His Word. Beloved, take a moment and think about how you react when you run into the poor and the needy in your daily life. It might be as simple as the homeless person at the freeway exit holding up the sign and asking for help. Or in a totally different context, it might be a neighbor or a coworker or a family member or another church family who has fallen on hard times and is deeply struggling making their ends meet. How do we respond? It's sometimes so tempting to justify away our calling. We might wrongly tell ourselves, well, they've clearly been irresponsible, they've clearly been lazy, or, or we might uh, justify not helping as we notice that they're on drugs or they're always uh, drinking and drunk, or we might coldly think they'll just waste the money I, I give them on things that are bad for them. Or maybe we might say to ourselves, they're just going to become dependent on my handouts. None of these reasons excuse us from our calling to care for the needy around us. Of course, we need to use wisdom. Of course, we need to figure out the best way to help out of love for God and love for them. But wisdom should never become an excuse for not having a caring heart. Beloved, we have tasted the deep compassion of Jesus in the midst of our own spiritual poverty. How can we turn around and have icy hearts towards the needy around us? We must not have the selfish and hard heart of Charles Dickens's Ebenezer Scrooge, but the loving and tender heart of God that we've come to know in Christ Jesus. As the Apostle Paul writes, may we all grow to be more like our Savior Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we by his poverty might become rich. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's a lot here to think about and to reflect on and to evaluate in our lives. First and foremost, thank you, Jesus, that you, you've done all the good works that we ever need to do to make us right with God. 
We rest in you, Jesus. And we're confident of your forgiveness. And we are forever grateful and we worship you this morning. And Lord, we ask that just that your, your love that, that, that's so precious to us that we desperately need and cling to that we would also learn from it and reflect you better in our dealings with fellow human beings who are in a bad place. Pray that you give us soft hearts, Holy Spirit. I pray that you give us wisdom and love on how we can better serve those around us in compassion, just like you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.